Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening, everybody, and a very warm welcome to all of you, uh, and many thanks for joining us today. Today's session is the second of three and it'll be on trade and environment. A hugely complicated, sensitive, and massive topic which affects everyone profoundly. I'm delighted to welcome our two speakers for today's session. To my immediate left is Ignacio Garcia Bercero. My apologies for the pronunciation. He is in charge of multilateral affairs and at the Directorate General of Trade in the EU, a vastly experienced uh, trade diplomat, negotiator, uh, trade expert, who has been engaged with the process since the Uruguay round in the 1980s. To his left, I'm delighted to welcome Emily Lydgate. She is a reader in environmental law at the University of Sussex and is also deputy director of uh, their trade uh, research group. Ignacio and Emily will be interacting across a series of four distinct topics which, of course, are interrelated. In the first phase of this uh, event, Ignacio and Emily will uh, exchange general reflections on the role of the WTO, setting the scene. This will be followed by a section on the issue of trade-related climate measures, including the EU's CBAM proposal process. The third section will be on subsidies, covering green, fossil fuel, and agriculture. As you can see, these are huge topics in themselves. And the final section will be on environmental goods and services. Broadly, I'll try and ensure that each section takes about 15 to 20 minutes, which will leave about half an hour at the end for questions. In inviting questions, I would like to give priority to students. So how many of you are students either at the LSE or at any institution? All at the back, huh? Some of them. Okay, if you don't mind, bear in mind that I'll call on you first for the question and answer session, and then I'll open it more, uh, more broadly. We have only one firm time we have to bear in mind, and that is to conclude by 8 o'clock and we then move to the reception area outside the theater, 
where you can continue the discussion with both Ignacio and Emily, should you have more questions or more things you want to talk about. That too will run for about 50 minutes to an hour. So please don't imagine that everything has to be exhausted during this process itself. With your permission, if that's okay, I would like to invite Emily to set the ball rolling and to introduce the first topic. Emily. Thanks, uh, thanks Julius, and, and thanks very much for inviting me to do this. It's, uh, it's great fun for me to have the opportunity to interrogate um, Ignacio um, and to get to hear his latest thinking about how uh, we're going to confront what I think is really one of the biggest challenges for, for international climate cooperation. Um, so um, when I started in this area of uh, trade and environment, you know, 20 years ago, you know, but, but who's counting? Um, it was pretty common for trade officials to say that environment and climate were quote unquote uh, non-trade issues. So my first question for, for you, Ignacio, is do you think that climate change has been now embraced as a trade issue in the WTO? Um, and, and if so, you know, what can we hope to see the WTO contribute to this issue? Uh, no, thanks a lot, uh, Emily. And perhaps I would like to start by going back uh, to the previous talk uh, which I gave here in LSE Ideas, which was, I think, in the month of June, shortly after what was a surprisingly successful the ministerial meeting of the WTO, MC12. And if you actually look into the outcomes of that conference, something which is quite remarkable is that practically none of those outcomes fit well with the normal narrative about what the WTO is all about. Now, the normal narrative of the WTO is about uh, negotiating market opening, negotiating rules to ensure a level playing field. That is what is supposed to be the core business of the WTO. Now, if you actually look at what was agreed in MC12, you have an agreement about fishery subsidies. That is, for the first time, the, an agreement that has as its core objective sustainability, the protection of the global commons. Although I would also argue it also has a level playing field dimension attached to it. You had agreements related about how the trading system could respond uh, to a pandemic, uh, the twist waiver, but also more broadly speaking, the response to <coughs> a, a trade on trade and health. And you had, you had no agreement about how to advance the classical agricultural agenda, but you had an agreement about food security. So in a way, what I think this shows to me is that there's a certain uh, dynamic in the WTO that in practice, if you actually want to get things done, if you want to get agreements agreed uh, at the multilateral level, you need to have a broader sustainability narrative attached uh, to it. So from that point of view, you could say the situation is now better than it was 20 years ago. Uh, there's a greater recognition that if you actually wanted uh, to agree uh, forward actions in the WTO, you need to somehow articulate it as being connected to broader sustainability objectives. So that uh, would be an argument to say, yes, the situation has changed. It's a much better scope now to deal with issues like trade and climate, like trade and environment uh, in the WTO. I think, however, one should be, in my view, realistic. I mean, just to give you uh, one example, 
one of the difficult issues that we had uh, to negotiate in the last WTO ministerial was to include a reference in a ministerial declaration to the word climate. Now, this was the first time that you could agree in a WTO ministerial meeting that the WTO had anything to do with trade and climate. So that shows you that uh, still the reluctance uh, to bring certain issues into the WTO agenda is very much uh, still there. And there's still a lot of apprehension that uh, bringing those issues into the WTO agenda can open the door to protectionism, can open the door to, to trade uh, restrictive uh, action. And I would not hide that there's a lot of controversy, for instance, about uh, some of the autonomous measures that have been proposed or adopted by the European Union, including the CBAN. So these issues continue to be an issue that gives rise to difficult discussions in the context of the WTO, which means that if you are looking in terms of how to build a forward-looking trade and environment, trade and climate at the end of the WTO, I think you need to combine some sense of ambition with also pragmatism and realizing about how much, if I can put it this way, the market can bear. And I think it's also important that you have a view about the WTO, which is just not focused on the question of negotiating legally binding rules agreements. Now, this is the highest end of the spectrum. There are different uh, occasions where you can actually have the sufficient normative consensus in the WTO to say the conditions are ripe to negotiate a legally binding agreement. But uh, this is, I say, the highest end of the spectrum, and there are other tools, other things that you can do in the WTO that maybe do not go so far as a legally binding agreement, but which are still are useful contributions to build up international consensus and to reduce trade tensions. You have the role of the WTO as a forum for transparency, which is something which, uh, from my point of view, it is not sufficiently yet used when it comes to the trade and climate uh, interface. You have the WTO as a forum where you can actually identify the themes which are critical for the trade and environment interface. And those are issues that, despite the fact that we have in the WTO a committee on trade and environment, they are not really properly deliberated at this point in time. You have also issues which have to do with uh, the possibility of developing non-binding instruments, uh, guidance. And these are all issues that I think as you look into how to develop a trade and climate and trade and environment agenda, you need to really try to identify what it is at any point in time that it is likely to be able to move forward. In some cases, it may not go all the way towards rules. In some cases, it might actually be elements which are more linked to transparency, which are more linked to, to deliberation. And I think that that's something that as we move forward uh, to the next uh, WTO ministerial meeting that uh, normally will take place at the end, at the end of next year, we would need to take that in mind. And as we go through the three topics that, I, that you mentioned, Julius, I would try to indicate in my view within each of those topics what is the spectrum about what is possible at this point in time to, to move the WTO agenda agenda forward? So I guess what I'm taking from, from that is that there's quite a mixed picture here in terms of that question of whether the WTO is really owning climate as, as an issue that it, that it addresses. You know, on the one hand, to some extent, it is being mainstreamed um, into the WTO in the sense that there's just more discussions going on about it than there ever have been before. So, you know, you mentioned the, the transparency function and, and one example of that is that 
um, according to, to the Secretariat. In, in 2019, um, you know, WTO members notified twice as many uh, trade-related climate measures than they did than they did in 2010. There's also the, the um, trade and environmental sustainability structure discussions in which a subset of, of WTO members are explicitly discussing trade-related climate measures. Um, so that all seems to, like, as you say, there's, there's, there's a lot of progress in, in, in just discussing the issue and, and recognizing in that sense. But you could also say that, um, you know, that the issues haven't progressed at all, you know, since, since the 1990s in the sense that there's still a huge amount of concern um, from WTO members about the impact that trade-related climate regulation is going to have on their on their export industries, and they want to guard against uh, negative impacts there. So, um, I guess my next question for you is, you know, how can the WTO look look in the face of what you might describe as sort of the hard problem of of climate regulation, which is um, when countries pass climate regulation that that impedes trade. Um. No, absolutely. I think that that is probably the fundamental question that uh, needs to be tackled uh, at this point in time in the WTO agenda, how to deal with trade-related climate measures. But before getting into the agenda of the WTO, let me try to put the issue a bit uh, on perspective. Now, it is not a coincidence that it is at this point in time, as we are committed uh, towards uh, net zero as we want to achieve uh, this objective by 2050, that a number of actions are being considered, are being taken, that inevitably are going to have a more significant impact on trade than have been the case uh, in the past. Now, the decision by the European uh, Union to, to develop uh, a carbon border adjustment measure was based on the recognition that if we want to decarbonize uh, energy intensive uh, uh, for carbon-intensive industrial sectors, you need to have an effective instrument to deal with the issue of carbon leakage. I mean, just to give you a few numbers, uh, the price of carbon at this point in time in the European Union is more than 80 euros per ton. The price of carbon uh, in China, which by the way has an ETS which is inspired uh, on the European system, it is 8 euros per ton. So with that kind of different uh, in prices uh, in carbon, if you are looking into sectors like steel, uh, aluminum, uh, cement, uh, fertilizers, which are highly carbon intensive, highly traded, there's no way that you are going to be able to achieve uh, decarbonization of the sector if you don't have an instrument to ensure that the efforts that you are making to increase the price of carbon, to, to decarbonize the sector, come to nothing because at the end of the day, industries they would simply move into locations where they are not subject to a carbon constraint. So that's the realization why we thought, although it was uh, perhaps an issue that has attracted controversy, that we had to be able to introduce uh, in the European Union a carbon border adjustment measure. At the same time, we were actually very careful in terms of ensuring a design that could be considered to be WTO compatible, and that which also try to minimize to what is strictly necessary the impact on trade. Now, I think we will have a bit of an opportunity to talk a bit also about uh, about CBAN, uh, but the whole design of CBAN is trying is done to ensure that importers are not subject to a cost which is higher than the one that is imposed on domestic producers. There is a fair system to give credit 
to the carbon pricing measures which are actually taken in third countries, and also that the system is introduced in a very gradual manner. Actually, I think it's going to be four years in the moment that the legislation is adopted before the measures are actually applied, which implies a lot of scope, a lot of time to see how to build up a cooperation strategy, particularly when it comes to countries which are the vulnerable developing countries that may, in certain cases, be impacted by the CBAN. So we have been, uh, I think, quite careful in terms of the design of the CBAN, but this being said, it is very clear that this is a measure that, which attracts controversy, which attracts uh, discussion. And one of the issues that we have been doing from the very beginning is that even before the legislation was adopted, to be quite ready to present it in the WTO, to present it in the Committee on Trade and Environment, to answer to the questions that third countries have about uh, the CBAN. And that's something which, quite frankly, we hope is going to become now a much more systematic uh, practice that as countries consider different types of trade-related climate measures, that they are ready to do an early notification in the WTO, and they are ready to engage in a, diart, in a real dialogue to actually explain the rationale for the measures, to understand the concerns that may come from the third country, and to try to ensure that in the WTO you can have a, a forum where you can actually discuss these issues before the measure is adopted, and secondly, hopefully, to begin to identify common themes, because we have adopted a measure like the CBAN. Other countries are going to be adopting other measures to deal with the issue of carbon leakage. Sometimes you may actually have contradictory approaches by different countries and trying to find a way to, as much as possible, to ensure coherence about the way that all these measures are being implemented to see how you can respond to potential concerns that this may raise by countries, particularly vulnerable developing countries. That's a job that the WTO should be able to do. And that's why we think that one of the issues that should be very much at the center of the agenda for the WTO between now and the ministerial meeting is how to revitalize the Committee on Trade and Environment that was created already at the beginning of the WTO, already at that point in time there was a recognition about the importance of the trade and environment interface, but which has become a committee which is not particularly high profile, if I may put it that way, in terms of the activities of the WTO, and which from a point of view uh, should become much more central in terms of what the WTO is doing. So this work about uh, transparency, looking into issues which are common to different trade-related climate measures, like for instance, how to measure carbon, what are the different methodologies which can be used in order to measure carbon content of products, all of those issues which are important in terms of the trade implication of those measures, we believe that there should be, at the very least, a forum for deliberation in the WTO. Now, as the discussions move forward, as you build confidence, it may be that you can actually begin to consider outcomes in terms of agreements, maybe not initially legally binding agreements, but uh, best practices, uh, uh, recommendations, and that in itself we think could fulfill an important uh, objective in terms of reducing tensions within the trading system, because these type of measures, I think, are increasingly going to, to be taken. Uh, they are going to have more significant impact in trade than has been the case in the past with environmental, uh, with environmental regulations, and it's important that you have a forum within the trading system where decisions can be debated, and where I said, uh, you can actually find ways of, uh, of reconciling the, the different uh, policy, policy, policy perspectives. So that would be my, my first point for a possible 
twee tanken klaar met agenda in de in de in de in de WTO. Okay, so I think I think I have sort of three three. Uh, the first one is you know you're proposing sort of revitalizing the committee on on trade and environment by bringing some of these discussions on things like uh, trade related climate measures into that forum. Um, but that seems to me like it's 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 sort of a proposal about how and where discussions take place. So moving them from this more sort of smaller groups of countries in the trade and environmental sustainability structure discussions into the multilateral space. Um, so it's more about sort of where that where these controversies play out rather than um, addressing the the controversies themselves. So I wonder if you had a response on that. Um, the other the other question I had was about um, was about the CBAM proposal. Um, and um, I think you sort of alluded to the, some of the controversy that has resulted from that proposal. And it seems to me that, you know, and I'm, I'm sure you've, <laughs> you've taken heat on this proposal in various, in various fora, it's become almost sort of the elephant in the room in these trade and climate discussions where, um, you know, countries are, are concerned about it and they see, you know, possibly the EU as being the sort of the villain of, of climate unilateralism in that in that sense. So um, you know, I have a lot of empathy <laughs> for what it, the difficulties that the Commission must be facing in putting its head above the parapet and saying, look, we've got to deal with leakage and we're going to charge products coming in the same prices you know that our producers are 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 paying. Um, because you know, on the one hand, it's facing a lot of pressure from EU industry who are saying or who are worried, you know, about what's going to be the impact of phasing out the free allowances, which is how this issue was dealt with before. And on the other hand, they're, they're experiencing a lot of pressure from trade partners who are concerned about the impact on, on their exports. Um, so, um, you know, in the spirit of kind of piling on pressure onto the EU, um, I thought I would, I would sort of put one of these concerns to you directly, which is um, that, that countries such as, you know, Brazil, um, India, China, and, and South Africa um, essentially are, are arguing that the EU's proposal goes against the Paris Agreement because the fundamental approach of the Paris Agreement is that countries determine their own contribution to uh, mitigating climate change um, and also because it provides uh, for uh, common but differentiated responsibilities for developing countries which means that developing countries have less individual responsibility to uh, mitigate climate change and also um, respective capacities that it will be more difficult for developing countries to implement all the regulatory requirements that come with CBAM. They have to be able to calculate how many emissions are embedded in their exports in these in these sectors, which is quite complex. So um, you know, so so it seems to me that one one element that's sort of lacking from from the Commission's proposal is to couple the CBAM with more sort of explicit support measures for developing countries. So that could take the form of climate finance or or, or capacity building uh, to implement this. So. Um, you know, it seems to me that the sort of the, the, this, the common but differentiated responsibilities element is not really at the fringes, but really at the core of the global decarbonization project. Because um, you know, if, if 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 they get left behind, then we're not going to get very far. So, um, so that was that. I have one more as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you know, my final my final question is, um, you you. Um, you know, you, you alluded to the to the potential for, for for the WTO at least indirectly to support not only 
you know, countries hashing out these competitiveness issues, but also working towards cooperation. So you talked about, you know, common methodologies and thinking about how we measure carbon and, and also you, uh, climate clubs where we could, um, you know, well, who knows what a climate club is? You know, there's a lot of different ideas out there. But, you know, but let's say that a climate club is that countries exempt each other on a country basis from uh, CBAM or other charges. Um, so the only really sort of concrete path to that exemption that, uh, that I've seen in the commission's proposal, although there are sort of some tantalizing hints, <laughs> is, that, um, is that in order to be exempted from CBAM, you have to be part of the EU's carbon pricing or be linked to the EU's carbon pricing scheme. Um, and the countries that are on that list are very, you know, that's a short list, right? So Switzerland is the only country that's successfully linked its ATS scheme. So basically, you have to have the same carbon pricing system. So I'm wondering if you think it makes sense to sort of forgive countries on a country basis from CBAMs or other kind of parallel charges on any other basis than besides linking ETS schemes, because that would really potentially you know, open this up to a lot more countries participating. Yeah. Can I, um, may I just make a, <clears throat> a request? As a preface to your response to Emily's questions, could you just very briefly explain the CBAM system? Okay. Very briefly. <laughs> okay. Uh, now, basically, the CBAM is supposed to be the external projection of the ETS. I mean, the European trading scheme implies that domestic producers in Europe have to pay a carbon price. This carbon price is calculated on the basis of emissions at the facility level. So it varies. Uh, uh, at this point in time, it's about 80 euros uh, per ton, but it's something which is determined by the market. And of course, imports into the European Union are not subject to any carbon constraint. Now, until recently, what had happened to deal with this problem was basically to let European industries to benefit from free allowances. So you need to buy allowances. Uh, that's the way that you actually pay for your carbon pricing. But if you are an industry which is highly exposed uh, to the risk of carbon leakage, a portion of your allowances are free of charge. Now, this is a system uh, which is not very efficient. That actually also implies that uh, the efforts of decarbonization uh, are not progressing as fast as they should progress. And our assessment is that if we were going to keep the system, there is no way that we would be able to achieve climate neutrality in those sectors by 2050. So what uh, the European Commission uh, has decided is that uh, free allowances have to go. They have to go progressively. And that's one of the big debates that is happening in the European Parliament. How long, uh, the, uh, how, for what long would be the period uh, that the free allowances would be phased out? But imports should actually be paying a price on carbon, which is basically the same price that which has been applied in the European Union, and which is measured on the basis of the carbon intensity of the producer itself. So that there is no discrimination in terms of the price which is being placed by the domestic producer and uh, the importer. Now, that's the basic uh, system of CBAN. There is, of course, uh, a number of issues on which I will come when I respond to the, to the, to the question from Emily. But uh, the basic uh, system is, uh, that, is, is, is that one. Now, before going into the CBAN-related questions, let me get into the first one. 
are we just simply talking about shifting the debate uh, from uh, a debate among like-minded to a debate which is a multilateral one? To a certain extent, yes, but that's extremely important because one of the limitations about the discussion on trade and climate, trade and environment in the WTO is that at a certain point in time, because it was felt that you could not have a meaningful conversation in a multilateral forum, countries that were interested in moving forward this agenda, they started to create a little bit of a coalition of the willing to discuss and debate those issues. And that, of course, was extremely valuable, and we are very, very much invested in this exercise among the like-minded. But quite frankly, the issues that have to do with the trade and climate interface are global. And I think it's important that you are in a position to discuss those issues meaningfully, not only with the countries that think like you, but also with countries we do not necessarily think like you. You have mentioned India, you have mentioned uh, South Africa, you have, but China is part of the plurilateral uh, setting. The India and South Africa are not. And moving this discussion into the more formal WTO structure of the Committee on Trade and Environment, trying to ensure that it's a discussion which is useful, that attracts the regulators from the countries which are taking the measures, but is also a way of really understanding the concerns that are being uh, perceived in certain countries. I think in itself, it's something that should be integral way of creating the cooperation strategy that you have referred to. And I think I would agree with you. I mean, I think it's very clear that, that uh, for Sivan to have legitimacy, for Sivan to do his work properly, it would be necessary to embed it in a cooperation strategy. Now, that comes down to, to your first question about Sivan uh, and its relationship with common but differentiated responsibility. Now, first of all, Sivan is about the European Union being able to fulfill its commitments under the Paris Agreement. There's no way that we would be able to achieve a climate neutrality in certain sectors unless we have instruments to deal with the problem of carbon leakage. It is not trying to impose on any country the level of ambition that they want to pursue domestic, but it's just trying to ensure that our efforts to achieve decarbonization are not nullified. We don't think that the way to, to deal to, with the potential impact on countries is by extending the influence even. That, by the way, will be creating the, the wrong uh, signals for investment because if you are going to access a certain country from Sivan, you would immediately create an incentive for investments to move into the country which has been exempted. But I would agree with you that uh, for Sivan to, to be legitimate, it is going to be critical that uh, when it comes to countries which are the vulnerable developing countries that may be impacted. Uh, uh, by Sivan, that there is a strategy to ensure that there is the instruments of cooperation that would help those countries to comply uh, with Sivan and that would help those countries to decarbonize. Now, if you actually look into the specific sectors which are, the, which are covered uh, by Sivan, first, I mean China, because China you mentioned among the countries that uh, uh, is complaining, about 1% of the exports from China are being uh, affected by Sivan. So the overall significance of Sivan in terms of trade uh, with China is extremely, extremely small. And again, it depends on the Chinese producers. Some Chinese producers of steel are quite uh, carbon efficient. 
And those reactors uh, may even be benefiting from SIVA because SIVA basically implies that if you are a carbon efficient producer, you will have to pay a very small charge. If you are not efficient, if your carbon emission intensity is high, then you have to pay a higher charge. So basically, for those countries that have been moving forward in the path of decarbonization, SIVA can even give them a certain, a certain competitive advantage. So what are the countries that uh, could be affected? Well, obviously Russia, but uh, we are living now in a different world when it comes to relationship with Russia in an event. Ukraine, again, we are living in a bit of a different world when it comes uh, to, to Ukraine and the reconstruction of Ukraine. So basically, uh, the only vulnerable developing countries that would be impacted are some countries in North Africa. I don't know why you define Turkey as a vulnerable developing country. They are a member of the OECD, so I would probably put them in a different category. And then there is one product for which one this developed country uh, is going to be affected, and that is uh, Mozambique for aluminium. And we are certainly looking into all of those issues, and we are certainly also seeing how to develop a strategy to ensure that there are elements uh, to facilitate compliance of those countries, uh, of those countries with Sriban. Now, you asked me about uh, the Climate Club and should it, should it be a good strategy to exempt countries uh, from the application of SIVAN? Quite frankly, we want to maintain uh, a scheme which is WTO compatible. I think we have to be very, very careful about the idea of country exemptions. Now, you have mentioned uh, Switzerland uh, and Norway. The only reason why these countries are exempted from SIVAN because those countries apply domestically an ETS, which is essentially the same one as that of the European Union. So their domestic producers are already paying a carbon price because they apply domestically the, 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 the emission, emission trade scheme, which is basically the same as the European Union. It would make no sense for them to be subject to CBANT in those circumstances. When it comes to other countries which are not in the situation, which is most countries in the world, what we provide for in the CVANT uh, regulation is not exemption, but it is crediting. So if a country is applying uh, domestically a price on carbon, and their producers which are exporting into the European Union have already price paid, let's say, 10 uh, because of their carbon emissions, you discount those 10 from the one that they have to pay in Europe so there is no double taxation. So that uh, at the end of the day, the effective price that you are applying, it is basically the same one if you have already paid a certain price in the country, in the country of exportation. And the basic principle is, is that uh, the producer pays on the basis of its actual embedded carbon emissions. Now, it is true that an issue that might be difficult for some producers in certain countries is how to measure those carbon emissions and how to ensure that there is a proper system of verification. And those are the sort of issues where, because we have this four-year transitional period before the system will be operational, you have the possibility of seeing how to, how to, respond, how to respond to those, to those challenges. Uh, I think I have answered your questions. Yeah. Okay. I'm tempted to respond, but I've got. I, I'm looking to you. How are we doing for time? Should we're we move fine. on? Yeah. Do you want to move on to the subsidies one? I, I'm. A, I'm a little tempted to respond. Yeah. <laughs> respond. Respond. Please. So I mean, forget you know developing countries. Let's let's talk about the UK, right? I mean, we're we're uh, one of the most uh, not. We're, we're uh, the developing UK. Let's call us. So um. So we you know we we're one of the most exposed countries, right, to CBAM. Yeah. 
Um, and you can say, okay, well, in practice, we're not going to have to pay it because you know our carbon prices are more or less the same still. I think you guys are a little bit ahead right now, but um, you know we've got the, basically the same carbon pricing scheme as, as the EU. We just made it independent, um, and um, and yet for EU producers, having to do all the conformity assessment to export to the to the to the EU is going to be extremely cumbersome. You have to register you know, to on, get on the list to export, then you have to apply the method methodology to know what your embedded emissions are, and then you have to have it verified by a third party, and that in itself represents an expense, and that would be the incentive for, you know, having a country-based exemption is that you could, you could automatically qualify and you could avoid all those steps. Now, I understand and I agree with you, and I think it's a really interesting question for the international trade system as a whole, that as soon as you exempt countries as a whole rather than individual products, it's very hard to, to justify that. Um, but I just wanted to flag that, you know, it's not just the price, it's also... Can I, can I respond? Please. <laughs> now, first, I mean, you would need to explain to me, because I think it is basically a political choice of the UK, why the UK having a DTS system, which is true, it is very similar to, to the European system, does not want to link to the European system. Because if you want, if you extend, you really need to have security that the system is being applied in a manner that producers are paying the same carbon price. And that's why you need to have a system of linkage like the one that we actually have with Switzerland. For whatever reasons, I understand it's probably more political than anything else, the UK doesn't seem to, to want to link uh, to, the, to, the, to, the, to the European system. Now, the second question is that uh, one of the elements which is included uh, uh, in CBAN is the possibility of entering into agreements precisely to facilitate the recognition of the pricing schemes which are happening in a certain country. That is one of the trade facilitating tools which is actually included under the CBANT uh, under CBANT regulations because there may be countries that have a pricing scheme and it is true, it is simpler to, to apply the system if instead of depending on verification by the individual producers, you have some recognition of the work which is being done by the authorities in the third country. And this is a possibility which is actually envisaged under the under the CBAN regulations. So if the UK doesn't uh, want to link to the European ETS system for whatever reasons, the option of negotiating the, an agreement that would facilitate uh, and simplify the cost for producers is a possibility which is there. Okay, that was the answer I was I was looking for. I'm definitely taking notes on that one. I want, want more details on what this uh, agreement might look like. So, okay, so I think we probably should move on. Now. So, um, okay, so let's talk about subsidies. Um, so, you know, clearly subsidies are part of the toolkit that countries are using to, um, you know, to decarbonize their economies. Um, but there are also concerns about countries' ongoing uh, subsidy support for fossil fuels. So according to the OECD, um, and largely in response to the Ukraine war, the amount of uh, subsidy support that countries gave to their um, fossil fuel industries has um, doubled in major economies over the last year. So my question is, you know, do you see WTO rules on subsidies as, as adequate with respect to these, to these challenges? Uh, no, thanks. Actually, the issue of subsidies and their impact uh, on the environment, positive or negative, is, I think, is potentially one of the more important but also the more difficult issues that can be tackled uh, in the WTO. 
And I think that in reality, I believe that you are really talking about three types uh, of situation. Now, you have mentioned uh, fossil fuel subsidies, and that would be an example to, of a form of subsidy which is uh, negative from the point of view of the environment, and in certain cases, also trade distortive. So you want you combine two negatives when it comes to, to fossil fuel subsidies. Now, you also have uh, subsidies that may actually have uh, the objective of protecting the environment um, to facilitate uh, the insta installations of renewable energy, to promote uh, the take-up of electric cars, uh, to somehow to, uh, facilitate investment in decarbonization techniques. Those, all of those subsidies have a positive environmental goal, but in certain cases can also generate uh, negative spillover effects, distortions of trade, and or distortions of competition. I mean, a clear example would be those cases in which in order to benefit from a subsidy, you need to produce the product that you are subsidizing domestically, what are called local content requirements. Now, I mentioned those because they are very topical, because at this point in time, as you know, the United States has adopted a major piece of legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act, which of course it has it follows a very a very positive objective to, to allow the United States to fulfill the, its commitments under the Paris Agreement, but which at the same time makes a very significant use of subsidies which are linked to local content requirements, and which is therefore also an issue of serious concern for us and other countries that are seen as a result of these subsidies a strong incentive is being created for industries to move from Europe to the United States to be able to, to benefit from those subsidies, since uh, otherwise you are not able to, to benefit from the subsidies. And that can distort uh, trade uh, on batteries, that can distort uh, trade uh, on electric cars, that can distort uh, trade uh, on, um, on um, renewable energies. So it's quite a significant concern. And there you have an issue. You have a legitimate uh, environmental objective, but you have designed the subsidy in a manner that uh, creates uh, distortions. So how you balance, uh, how you balance uh, the two, and then you probably have subsidies that, um, in principle, they look to be clearly positive from the point of view of the environment. But still, because of the way that the rules of the WTO are actually constructed, they may subject to countermeasures in a certain country. Just to give you an example, I mean, I was mentioning before the, the emission trading scheme in Europe that implies that producers in Europe have to pay for a carbon price. Now, until recently, the main mechanism that we have been using to, to compensate for carbon leakage is to make part of those allowances free of charge. And these were considered to be in the United States by the Department of Commerce, a countervailable subsidy that could be subjected to countervailing duties in the United States, even if producers in the United States are not subject to any kind of carbon constraint. But uh, from the point of view of uh, countervailing duty law, this does not matter. This is just simply something that because it is uh, a benefit uh, is considered as a subsidy that will be subject to a countervailing duty. So that shows that uh, there's quite a few areas of uh, complexity, quite a few areas where you could actually imagine that the rules of the WTO could be updated, uh, could be modernized to better integrate uh, this sustainability, this environmental dimension. By the way, one thing which I forgot uh, to mention uh, 
in my initial introduction. One of the very interesting uh, developments after MC12 is that one of the areas where there was no agreement in MC12 is how to move forward on the reform of agricultural subsidies, which is one of the fundamental issues in the WTO on which uh, there should have been progress already more than 20 years ago, and where they said negotiations are totally stuck, not possible to make progress. And it's very interesting that uh, the Cairns group of countries, which are the, the main agricultural exporters, they're increasingly arguing that in order to make progress on negotiations in the WTO, you need to introduce a sustainability dimension into the negotiations on agriculture subsidies. You need to be able to integrate within your, within your uh, negotiations the question about are these subsidies having the positive or negative impact on the, on the environment. So potentially I think that this is an area where there's a lot which could be done, uh, could be done in the WTO. At the same time, uh, very, very challenging. It is very going to be very, very difficult to design the, the rules that uh, factored uh, the balancing the, among uh, those the different uh, elements. Now, from the practic pragmatic point of view, what we or what, what, I, what I think that uh, it is perhaps the first step is to have a better analytical understanding about the relationship between different uh, types of subsidies and the protection of the environment. At some point in time, I think you would need to move towards a negotiation. You would need to, to look into how to modernize the rules of the WTO on subsidies so that you mainstream the, these environmental considerations. But uh, that's not going to be simple. I, it's going to be a complicated exercise. And as a first step, uh, what I think one should aim to do between now and the next WTO ministerial meeting is to agree that there is a need to look again into the rules of subsidies in the WTO, that there is a need to have a better analysis about the, how these rules are actually working in practice, and that part of this discussion has to be the relationship between these rules and the sustainability and the sustainability dimension. Now, hopefully, for those discussions, who bring in expertise from different international organizations, you would be able to generate uh, more consensus about how to move forward on the agenda. One issue is to modernize the rules of the subsidies agreement uh, uh, in the WTO, which relates to industrial subsidies. A second issue is how to integrate environmental sustainability considerations into the agricultural negotiations. And then potentially there's the question, can you develop a surface standing agreement uh, in the WTO on fossil fuel uh, subsidies? Very, very difficult. I think, quite frankly, if fisheries subsidies was complicated, I think fossil fuel subsidies is going to be even more complicated. Is it possible to do it multilaterally? Is it more feasible to do it uh, plurilaterally? I think those some of the questions that uh, that eventually would need to be would need to be would need to be discussed. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Um, I mean, I would definitely agree that there seems to be a huge potential with respect to the subsidies rules and supporting climate action. I mean, I, I always find it really interesting that um, it was considered to be a huge victory at, when the WTO uh, uh, agreement was negotiated just to come up with a definition of subsidies. 
That was that was a, a great leap forward in terms of transparency. Um, and and it, there are already transparency requirements in place um, for, for countries to notify all their subsidies, um, but they're not really being used. I, I wrote down the figure here. So um, 62 out of 157 WTO members actually notified their, their subsidies in 2021. So um, you know, even if countries could just fulfill that basic WTO obligation, that would give us a much better sense of what's actually going on in terms of renewable energy subsidies and, and, and also fossil fuel subsidies. Um, and, and, you know, another men issue that, that you mentioned is classification. So, you know, the UK, for example, um, you know, says it doesn't provide any fossil fuel subsidies, uh, but the OECD says that, says that it does. So, you know, why is that? You know, you have different methods of, um, of, of calculating subsidies, whether you consider tax breaks to be, to be a subsidy, for example. So, you know, the, the first step of fossil fuel subsidy uh, reform is admitting that you have a problem. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying that to wind up um, anyone uh, from DIT who might be in the room. Um, so, you know, can we come up with a, with a, with a common set of definitions um, and categories as an issue, and and so I, I have a couple of questions, um, you know, f for you um, about the sort of I, I guess both of them kind of have to do with the U.S. So um, you know, you, you you alluded to the fact that there might not be that much hope for um, for progress multilaterally in this in this space, um, and um, you know, and 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 that I think is reflected also in in the statements that the EU uh, and the U.S. and Japan have put forth on subsidies reform. So, they, so they managed to to converge on some positions, um, but none of, they didn't even mention green subsidies. So they want to reform the WTO rules on subsidies, but not in that area. Instead, they focus on industrial subsidies and basically uh, China's state and enterprises. So. I guess one question is now that we have what we might describe as a more sort of climate friendly administration in, in the White House, is there scope for more convergence between the EU and the US on, on bringing this forward as a multilateral issue? Um, and the second question is about the US Inflation Reduction Act, which just passed and which is basically an enormous subsidy package. So 500 billion in uh, spending and cuts in and tax or spending uh, and tax breaks essentially across a range of issues, but one of the main ones is uh, clean energy. So, um, you know, you mentioned that some of these um, subsidies discriminate against the EU. So, for example, uh, electric vehicle tax credits um, can't apply to um, electric vehicles assembled in the EU. So, the EU is, is rightly upset about this. Um, but I guess I have kind of a, a broader question about that, which is. Um, what does it mean for the global trading system and that, that, the, that the U.S. is adopting this sort of subsidies-based approach to the, the decarbonization of, of the U.S. economy? Um, you know, we, will that mean that other countries then feel the pressure? They need to apply the same kind of subsidies? Um, what does it mean for the EU? Because the EU's Fit for 55 package um, focuses a lot more on standards and due diligence and um, and you know CBAM, so you know, is it fair to say that the U.S. is adopting a sort of a carrot-based approach, and the in the EU is adopting more of a stick-based approach? Very briefly, Ignacio, because we have to move on to the last set of questions. Okay, um, I would try, but uh, there are really questions that <laughs> would questions. deserve a long, <laughs> a long. Uh, okay, now, 
Transparency is certainly one of the critical uh, problems uh, to introduce disciplines on subsidies because there are a lot of ambiguities which come down to, from the definition. Uh, a subsidy has to be specific in order to, to be cited to the disciplines of the WTO to what extent the fossil fuel subsidies are specific. Or when you have a taxation scheme, you need to establish a proper benchmark. So those raises a lot of definitional issues that are some of the difficulties which are attached to the whole question of implementation of subsidies disciplines in WTO. And I have not even entered into the complexities that have to do with the way that China provides subsidies to state-owned enterprises. And they, China would argue that what they do is not subsidies because they would, they would argue that uh, their state-owned enterprises are not public bodies, etc., etc. So there's a whole range of issues linked with transparency. And that's why, quite frankly, we believe that in order to, to actually prepare the ground for a negotiation which is necessary, you need to be able to discuss these issues independently about whether something is classified or not as being the subsidy in the WTO. You need to be able to talk uh, about the support that you are providing to the fossil fuel sector to explain uh, your policies, regardless about whether or not uh, you consider that it falls under the subsidy definition in, in the WTO. Now, you referred uh, to the work that was done uh, uh, in the trilateral uh, with the US and Japan during the days of the Trump uh, administration. Now, it is true that in those times that the focus was mainly how the rules of the WTO could be strengthened to be more effective when it comes to tackling the Chinese subsidies. Now, as far as we are concerned, we have been saying for quite some time, I think at least since we issued our trade policy strategy, that for us any negotiation on subsidies in the WTO should also look into the question of the green box. On the one hand, you need to have a stricter disciplines on certain subsidies, which are the trade distortive. But at the same time, you should be able to have, as used to be the case initially in the WTO, a green box for those subsidies that fulfill legitimate public policy objectives, provided that they are designed in a manner which minimizes the negative impact on others. And certainly, environmental subsidies under certain conditions for us should be part of a green box. Now, this being said, I would agree with you that the IRA is hugely complicating the discussion because I would find it very difficult to ever imagine a green box that would legitimate local content subsidies which are linked to local content. It is probably the most clear example of a subsidy which has a trade distorting impact, even if it may have an environmental goal. So it's not so much the fact that the US is doing a lot of subsidization, that means a legitimate tool. It is a problem that a lot of the subsidization, it is actually done in a manner which generates very important trade distortions. Because if you are the, a European the, company which is producing car batteries and you know that in order to, to sell in the United States you need to invest in the United States because otherwise you are not going to be able to sell but you obviously will consider why should I invest in Europe if should I invest instead in the United States. So that is actually generated a very significant uh, distortion. Uh, I mean there's no, no secret that we are very concerned about it and it is something that I think has already been made public that is now going to be discussed at the highest level with the White House to try to see where there is a way, where there is a way, where there is a way forward. Very diplomatically put, uh, Ignacio. You, know, you are going to be what, what uh, 
Yes, podcast. So now we move on to the last topic. Yes. How how long should we take on this? You've got about seven minutes. <laughs> okay. So um, this is a uh, you know. Environmental goods and services has been on the agenda at the WTO since, you know, 2001, Doha round. Um, WTO members, we're going to make progress on liberalizing environmental goods and service, that, that services, and that hasn't happened, at least um, through the WTO. So um, is there hope of revitalizing these negotiations, and if so, how? Uh, we hope that there is hope, because certainly as far as we are concerned, uh, we still think that it would be highly relevant that the WTO can actually promote uh, uh, action which facilitates and reduces the cost uh, for the transmission of uh, climate-related technologies. But I think it's going to require a different type of approach uh, to the one that was followed in the past. I mean, as you refer to more than 20 years of negotiations. During an initial phase, an attempt was to do this multilaterally. For many reasons, it did not actually progress. In any case, the whole DDA agenda uh, was basically put on ice. There was then an attempt uh, to negotiate this in a plurilateral grouping of uh, 14 uh, countries, including the United States, including the European Union, including China, with very little developing country participation. And at the end of the day, the negotiations uh, failed for a number of reasons. Uh, uh, part of it because it was very difficult to avoid a certain mercantilistic dynamic that inevitably fits, in which countries uh, are very keen to have some products included into the list of environmental goods, even if you cannot really demonstrate uh, that liberalizing tariff is going to have any particularly positive environmental impact, but it was very difficult uh, to get out of that uh, mercantilistic dynamic. There were problems related uh, with China, there were problems related uh, to finding a critical mass approach, and then in any case there was a change of administration in the United States, uh, Trump was elected as president, and obviously people somehow felt this is very unlikely to be now an issue of interest uh, for the U.S. administration. We are basically at this point in time uh, trying to explore uh, what would be alternative approaches that hopefully are also more inclusive, because at the end of the day, we would want to have an initiative that has as much buy-in as possible, to, not only by OECD countries, but also by, by uh, developing countries. We think that probably this is going to require being uh, creative, looking into different uh, options. Quite frankly, uh, it's a limit of how far I can say now, because we are still very much reflecting uh, on this. But some of the questions is, uh, wouldn't it make better to focus on a more limited list of products that have clearly beneficial impact on the climate transition rather than on a broader list which is of much more questionable to environmental credibility? Would it be better to, to focus on a much more limited list? How to deal with the issue that in quite a number of areas relating to climate technologies, the main obstacle for the dissemination is not the tariff, which in most cases is relatively low, but it is different uh, type of regulatory obstacles to trade. How to create synergy between whatever it is that you do on tariff with the liberalization of services which are linked to the dissemination of, uh, of climate-related technologies. 
and how to try to bring uh, more interest uh, from developing countries into the exercise, also by trying to look a little bit more how uh, opening your market can also be an incentive to favor investment. So those, all of those issues which are quite complex uh, are issues that we are looking into. There are ideas, for instance, about let's not look so much into a classical tariff negotiation based on a critical mass. Let's look more into a menu of options where the, you identified among a group of countries uh, a number of ways in which you can contribute towards the uh, climate objectives. Not all countries need to do the same thing. There can be a variation of contribution by different countries, although always you are going to need to have a certain balance, particularly uh, among the big trading partners. I think it's clear that uh, in order to see what we would be ready to do, we would need to understand what it is that China, what it is that the United States is ready to do. But that is not the same as having the, a rigid, uh, uh, critical mass uh, type, uh, type of approach. So all of those issues we are, we are at this point in time reflecting about. Now, we hope that between now and the, the next WTO ministerial, we will have at least a group of countries which are interested in further progressing on that. But that's something which is still at a very incipient uh, stage of discussion now in Geneva among uh, countries that participate in this uh, plurilateral initiative. Because some of the things that have been referring to are probably issues that uh, would be better pursued multilaterally. Some may actually only be possible to do in a plurilateral, in a plurilateral setting. Um, well, I think we would really like to hear from you, so I'm, I'm not going to respond too much on that, but if with, with your permission, I'll, I'll ask one more sort of, of course. broad question to, to kick off the Q&A. Um, so you have multilateral in your, in your job title, <laughs> um, but a lot of what we've talked about this evening has been about some of the limits of, you know, multilateral approaches in the WTO. And the WTO is supposed to be a consensus-based organization. That's, that's um, you know, one of its USPs. Um, but, you know, even just now we're talking about, well, environmental goods might not be able to move forward multilaterally. So, um, you know, my question is, um, is, is multilateralism dead, to put it in a sort of dramatic way, um, when it comes to trade and climate, um, the trade and climate agenda? Um. I don't think so. I mean, I think if you actually wanted to be able to advance the agenda of WTO, you need to be pragmatic and you need to be able to combine some things that you can do at the multilateral level, some things that you can only do uh, plurilaterally, but do it in a manner which is transparent, which is inclusive, and which does not in any way harm the interests of those who do not actually want to participate in a certain plurilateral exercise. I think that, I think, is the key for a well-covered uh, WTO. If we actually look into the trade and climate agenda, revitalizing the role of the Committee on Trade and Environment so that it becomes a real forum for deliberation and hopefully progressive consensus building on trade-related climate measures is by definition a multilateral affair. This is something that we hope is going to be possible to, to convince all countries in WTO that everyone would benefit from having a more efficient uh, deliberating function in WTO and that one would then need to see as the deliberations progress how far things uh, how far things uh, can uh, can go <laughs> on subsidies at least the beginning of the analytical phase the deliberation has to really be inclusive has to happen in a multilateral setting where everyone participates then i think it's going to be a question about looking into the different issues agriculture so far has always been negotiated multilaterally 
Although I know that there are some countries in Geneva, in the CARES group, which are thinking, well, it's not working really multilaterally. Shouldn't it, we, shouldn't it be pursued much more multilaterally? At the end of the day, it's going to be very, very difficult to do something unless the big subsidizers are ready to participate. So without the participation of the big subsidizers, it's difficult to see what you can do about agricultural subsidies. Now, that doesn't mean that necessarily everyone needs to be there, but at least the big subsidizers uh, need to be party party to it. Now, when it comes to industrial subsidies, again, that's going to be a difficult issue. I think uh, initially you should be looking into this uh, from a multilateral point of view, but it may be that at some point in time you are not able to agree on something multilaterally, but provided that you actually have, again, the big subsidizers and that uh, the way that the disciplines are conceived, you are not harming the interests of those who are not participating, that may also be one of the options that would need to be considered. In something like fossil fuel subsidies reform, to be very frank, I cannot imagine how you could ever get uh, a multilateral consensus in that in the WTO, looking into the position of some uh, participants in the WTO. If at the end of the day, you are going to have something which is more than mere transparency, because mere transparency, yes, you should be able to do that multilaterally, probably that would require uh, a, plurilateral, uh, a plurilateral exercise. And on the liberalization of environmental goods and services, I think you should try to be as inclusive as possible. For me, ending up with something which is just subscribed by 16 WTO members, which was where we were in the era point one, is not really the objective. You try to be something that is much broader and which therefore recognizes that different members would, would make to want different contributions towards the objective. But probably it's not going to be something in which every member of the WTO is going to be able to, to participate. Thank you very much. So Emily kept the easiest question till the end. Is multilateralism dead? <laughs> uh, now we throw it open to the first to the student community and then to the whole house. So who would like to start? I have a hand up at the back. Over here, okay, one, two, three, four. Uh, you have to identify yourselves because this is on a recorded um, uh, podcast. So if you don't mind, one, two, three, four. Who's the fourth guy here? Yes. And, and do you mind indicating to whom the question is addressed or to both? <laughs> Um, I also, oh, sorry, I'll introduce myself first. I'm Meta, um, LSE Geography, the Economics um, undergraduate, year three. Um, probably this is for um, Enix Show. Um, so I think my question, I'm just curious to, curious to know, in your opinion, how realistic is it um, to incorporate climate and into trade deals between um, China and US, you know, amidst the US calls for China to get back into climate talks while having an ongoing trade war and decoupling efforts with China? In this context, um, what role do you see the EU play in navigating this tension to pursue the trade and climate negotiating agenda for the WTO? Thank you. Thank you. Should I take more than one or just go one by one? Yeah. Uh, let's, let's take. Let's take. This, this is a huge question, so I think it's a huge. To... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted to bring the geopolitics into this. Uh, <laughs> that's going to be the topic of the next talk. But uh, no. Um, for me, it's very clear that the trade and climate agenda, and in general, I would say the climate agenda, really needs to be able to involve uh, the US, the European Union, China, many others, but the US, the European Union, and China need to be there to, for a trade and climate agenda 
to developing the WTO, despite geopolitical tensions. Now, at this point in time, uh, China, the United States, and the European Union, uh, together with many other countries, uh, have participated uh, in a plurilateral initiative, basically of those countries which believe that there has to be more consideration being given in the WTO to environmental-related issues. China, by the way, has been one of the main promoters of uh, dealing in the WTO with the issue of plastic pollution. So. I'm working on the assumption that uh, when we are trying to see how to move forward uh, this trade and climate agenda in the WTO, despite your political uh, tensions, it would be possible to in engage uh, China and it would be possible to engage the United, uh, United States. Now, I recognize that it's becoming increasingly difficult because the geopolitical tensions are increasing rather than, rather than reducing. But at least in MC12, it was possible to, to achieve an outcome on different areas, which both the United States and China were ready to subscribe. I mean, the, the fisheries subsidies negotiation implied some important commitments by China that implied some significant commitments to reform the Chinese system of, of support, and China was ready to subscribe to, to that uh, commitment. Uh, you also know that uh, when it came to the negotiations about the waiver of intellectual property, one of the more complicated issues was how to try to find a formula that was acceptable to China, that was acceptable to the United States, uh, to clarify that China was not going to claim benefits under the intellectual property waiver. So we hope that despite uh, the geopolitical tensions, it would still be possible to, to find uh, areas of agreement on trade and climate, and indeed on other issues of the WTO agenda, which I will talk uh, in, my, in my next talk, uh, because these are areas where there's a genuine interest of having cooperation. Yeah. November 22nd is the date for Ignacio's next talk, exactly on this sort of issue. Emily, did you want to add anything to this? Well, I mean, I know you guys are here are here for him, but I'll get my two cents in, um, which is that I think that there is a real risk that these that these two issues of sort of the geopolitical tensions and the climate agenda get conflated in a way that's harmful to global cooperation. So, for example, um, you know, right now the the EU and the US are talking about this um, global arrangement on uh, steel and and um, aluminium. Which basically says that um, they'll they'll um, you know it hasn't been very well developed yet, but they're going to apply some sort of um, trade restrictions on countries based on criteria that have to do with low carbon production, but also um, being uh, open economies essentially. So they're sort of ring fencing China out of it, and that's obviously you know as you say, Ignacio, it's it's not optimal if we're going to try to do climate cooperation. Then China's the biggest emitter has to be at the table. So. Um, I think it's definitely a really, a really interesting issue to continue to watch. Excuse me, were you referencing John Kerry's recent, recent statement about the bilateral requirements of China and the US? Were you referencing that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, are you familiar with that? It was just yeah, yeah, no, I, I read it in the in the paper today. No, I mean, since Emily referred to, to our discussions with the United States on the steel and aluminium. We were extremely careful in designing CBANT uh, to design an instrument which is WTO compatible, non-discriminatory. I am quite confident that whatever comes out from our discussions with the United States uh, would be something that we should be able to continue to argue that is non-discriminatory and is WTO compatible. Thank you. Thank you. 
Yes, this young lady there. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I'm, my, my, my name is Julian. I'm also a third year Geography of Econ student. So I suppose we're well represented here. Um, and I wanted to thank you both so much for the discussion and also address my question to both of you since I think you might have slightly contrasting uh, views. And I did want to address the elephant in the room, which is the CBAM. Uh, and I mean, I think we can surely all agree that, at least for the EU, it is an effective climate policy. Um, but I was wondering whether it doesn't sort of create a, create a climate club, uh, and in that sense do very little to level the playing field. And I think when we're looking at actors such as Russia or China, who it's very easy to villainize right now for various reasons, economic, social, security, um, we should also be looking at other countries, such as I think, Ignacio, you mostly deal with EU neighbors, so energy community contracting parties, many of which are seeking accession to the EU. I mean, they surely don't lack motivation to decarbonize, but maybe they lack the means, and I don't think the CBAM is making this any easier for them. Uh, so if you could briefly comment, thank you. Well, I mean, as I was trying to, to indicate uh, previously, uh, we are very conscious that there are some vulnerable developing countries that may actually have a difficulty in terms of compliant uh, with the requirements from CBAN. Although we should not either exaggerate, eh, because uh, basically when we are talking about uh, what you need to be able to, to do in order to, to benefit uh, from the application of CBAN at a lower rate, uh, is to provide verifiable data about those emissions which are actually taking place in the facility that you control because I, I don't want to enter into the complexities of uh, emissions, scope one, scope two, but CBAN, at least in the initial phase, uh, it is going to be applicable exclusively to those emissions which a producer which is responsible to be able to monitor and to be able to, to verify. Now, this being said, it is clear that uh, for administrations or for producers in the countries like uh, Egypt, uh, like uh, Algeria, I say because these are two of the countries that uh, potentially might be, might be impacted by CBAN, this might entail the cost, and that's why we have said that we very much uh, are ready to see what we can do in terms of cooperation to facilitate uh, the, compliance, uh, the compliance with CBAN. But, uh, as I said, I don't think that we are going to move in the direction of a climate club in which we start uh, exempting countries because of their overall, uh, overall policies. The way that we have designed uh, the CBAN, there's a very clear rationale to it, which is to say you should be able to pay a charge depending on the carbon intensity of your production, which is the same criteria that we apply uh, domestically. So unless you're having a country that has totally decarbonized uh, the, the, the sector, in principle, uh, you would need to be able to pay to pay CBAN, even there might be trade facilitating tools to take in uh, to try to reduce the cost the cost of compliance. Emily, um, I mean, I think I sort of said my piece on this already, uh, but I I would say that um, you know the CBAM is being debated right now. Um, it hasn't been introduced yet, and and I guess I would just flag another sort of risk, um, which would be that. Um, that that the EU bends to some of the domestic industry pressures, um, which um, are that it would um, introduce, for example, unconditional export subsidies for EU producers, um, or kind of lag behind in phasing out free allowances, even when countries that are exporting in or still have to, you know, apply the CBAM charges. 
Um, and I think if that does happen, then that will kind of undermine the, the moral high ground in the sense that, you know, what, if, what the EU is trying to do is, is, is combat leakage and that, you know, is, is production emissions moving to, to other countries. But if it's exempting its own producers from charges, then, you know, it, you, know the, you could theoretically have a situation where EU producers are saving their dirty stuff and exporting it, it elsewhere. So I think that, you know, it's, it's a very tricky line to draw. You know, there's a, there's a path a narrow path, you know, which is still being traversed at this stage to to sort of WTO compatibility and, and political acceptability. Can, can I just simply comment quickly on that? Because I think what Emily has raised is, of course, an important issue because we are in the middle to, of the legislative procedure. To, we, are, to, we are discussing to, with the Council, we are discussing with the European Parliament to complete uh, the legislation. Now, on the issue of free allowances, I see very, very little risk of what you have described happening. There's obviously, discussion about how quick uh, you should face out the free allowances with different positions taken by different political groups. I haven't, however, heard anyone challenging the very principle which is in our proposal, that is, whatever discount applies domestically because of free allowances should be equally applied for imports. So if you have a certain point in time, uh, domestic producers only have to pay 80% of the price because the rest they get from free allowances, imports should also only pay 80% of the price. So that principle is very much there in our proposal. And I don't haven't heard a single political group suggesting to move away from that. It's, of course, a debate about how fast you face out the free allowances. Now, the issue of export rebates is a very complicated one. Uh, by the way, not even those who are proposing to, to introduce export rebates in the, Europe, in, the, in the European Parliament are suggesting unconditional export rebates. They are suggesting that this should apply only for the companies that have a particularly high performance in terms of, the, in terms of carbon emissions. But as you know, the European Commission, and I think uh, the Council, is very much opposed to this because we see risk of WTO uh, compatibility. I wouldn't say it's 100% certain from the point of view of WTO law, but we see risk uh, of, WTO, of WTO compatibility. So we'll see what the final legislative uh, procedure results on that. Uh, very briefly, were you alluding to the unequal nature of the negotiations between the EU and other smaller countries? Um I, not specific, not specifically. I just sort of meant how um, you know there's a lot of things that we can do within the EU that, for various reasons, might not be possible outside of the EU. And I think with that in mind, um, we have to remember that. I mean, if you look at the EU population versus Indian, Chinese, um, even U.S. populations, this is still a very small margin. And I mean, we can find solutions for ourselves, but they also have to be. Um, adequate and accepted by others for a sort of net zero agenda for everyone. Sure. Thank you. I think you have to carry this discussion into the reception. <laughs> Thank so you. So the young man who doesn't have an Apple computer. Yes. <laughs> yes. Hello. Uh, so my name is Chandan. I'm from the School of Public Policy. It's again a CBAM question. Sorry for that. Uh, the question is, does uh, so uh, developing countries or other countries who are unable to comply with the requirements of EU, does uh, this not raise a case of a technical barrier to trade when I'm trying to export products and uh, EU is imposing my requirements for uh, more greener 
environment. Is this not a case of TBT? That's question one. Uh, question two is that now we are restricting it to few goods, aluminum, cement, electricity, fertilizer, iron, steel. But in the long run, if we include uh, more complex goods which have global supply chains, how do we account for the carbon credits? And in doing so, are we not increasing the administrative cost associated with that products? Two simple questions. Two very simple questions. <laughs> now, uh, there are some costs of compliance which is basically the cost of measuring carbon emissions by companies at their facility level. And then to have an objective system to verify that the declarations are uh, proper. Now, that is the basic cost of compliance, although if you do not actually provide that data, you can still export, but then you will have to pay a default value, which is less, uh, less favorable. Now, I would not say that this is a huge uh, cost uh, for companies to introduce. But this being said, uh, it is true that uh, for some uh, developing countries that might uh, require some degree of support, uh, some degree of, uh, of assistance. And that's what I said. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that you would really need to help China to do that. Quite frankly, by the way, China has an ETS domestically, although it doesn't apply it yet to industrial sectors. It only applies to the power sector. So I don't think that this is uh, something that would be so difficult for China to comply with. I don't think it would be so difficult for India either. I mean, India has uh, big uh, steel uh, producers and I think monitoring the, uh, emissions at the facility level uh, and having those verified. Uh, I don't say it is costless, but quite frankly, it is not uh, a huge cost. I would recognize that it is a more uh, bigger challenge uh, for a country like Mozambique, which is producing aluminium and which therefore would also be impacted by the CBAN. And that's why I would say, in terms of our cooperation strategy, certainly a country like Mozambique, I know that our colleagues which are responsible for development cooperation are already discussing with the authorities what measures could be taken to facilitate their compliance, their compliance with, uh, with CBAN. And that was the TBT question. What was the second one? Sorry, that was the... Manufactured goods appear increasing. Yes, I, no, that's clear. I mean, uh, in terms of selecting the, the sectors uh, that uh, are covered by the CBAN, we have been looking first and foremost to the question, is this a sector which is uh, carbon intensive and which is highly traded, and also administrative complexity? I mean, there may be some sectors which uh, theoretically you could actually uh, subject to a CBAM, but as you said, will be extremely complicated because of the complexities of the, of the value chain. And that's why we have only introduced CBAM to, to a limited number of sectors. And any expansion of the CBAM to new sectors will require new legislation. So it is not something that would be done lightly, it would require new legislation, it would require a new, a new impact assessment. And we are conscious that the more that you actually enter into complex, into complex groups, the more difficult that it becomes administratively to apply an instrument like, like CBAN. So I would not predict a very significant expansion. Although, by the way, one of the issues that is being discussed in the parliament is that some in the parliament would want to cover other sectors apart from those which are in the original proposal, or it does not include the more complex manufacturing sector that you are probably thinking about. Emily, you would like to add something? Um, I mean, I would just say that, you know, you could sort of flip this and view it in a more positive way, which is 
that this is actually the way that you know the CBAM is going to contribute to global carbon global not no, carbonization decarbonization um, is by building a huge amount of capacity in firms to measure their emissions. Um, you know, just as you know, when the emissions trading scheme was introduced for the first couple of years, people thought it wasn't working because the prices were low. But actually, firms were undergoing this big learning process of how do we measure our emissions, and now that learning process is happening uh, for uh, traded goods, for exported goods. How much CO2 is in each shipment, and it is fantastically complex. But it's also something that's not just coming from the EU; it's coming from lots of different bodies, lots of different discussions. Um, and the EU CBAM proposal is going to, in a sense, advance that using EU market power, because if you want to access the EU market, you have to, you have to know how to, how to do this. Um, so you, know, you could see it as a disadvantage, but equally you could see it as a kind of, a, 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 as, a, um, a, as a source of, of, of progressing that agenda. Yes, this young man here, the one who doesn't feel cold. Hi, um, my name is Francesco. I'm a student of economics at Queen Mary University of London. Uh, I just found quite striking that you know the topic of tonight is the climate agenda for the WTO. We spend most of our time talking about CBAM, which again is a multilateral uh, measure uh, rather than sorry a unilateral measure rather than a multilateral one. So again, do you feel uh, in this sense, uh, building from what Dr. Lidgate was saying, that multilateral multilateral is kind of multilateral um, negotiations are not going um, very well, or do you expect maybe countries from, to follow up from CBAM, maybe to set up their own CBAM? Also, a little follow-up question on something that I found a bit of a contradiction, because you said that CBAM, like we know, is the biggest uh, climate uh, policy that we've seen in recent years, but you said you affect, it, it does affect only limited amount of trade flows, which seems kind of raise the question, why bother in this sense? So do you expect maybe these trade flows to change in the future and to have more of an effect? Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Could you get the question? Yeah, I, like think I, I think I did. Well, I mean, the fundamental challenge is the following. Uh, if one is committed uh, towards uh, net zero and towards achieving uh, decarbonization uh, by 2050, there's no way that you are going to achieve that objective unless you decarbonize the steel sector, you decarbonize the aluminum sector, you decarbonize uh, uh, fertilizers, cement, all of which are sectors which are highly carbon intensive, which are a significant part of global carbon emissions and which are highly traded. So that's uh, the fundamental reason why the, why why CBAN is there. I mean, if you really want to achieve climate neutrality, you need to be able to do that. Now, we are not saying that all countries in the world uh, need to introduce uh, CBAN, certainly not. We are not even saying that all countries need to do into introduce a carbon pricing scheme or, or even that they have to apply the same carbon price as the European Union. That's not uh, what this measure is all about. But at the same time, if we really are committed towards decarbonization, there's no way that this would be possible without uh, being able to introduce some mechanism that tackles the issue of carbon leakage, but that does it in a manner which is not more trade restrictive than necessary, and it is also part of a strategy of cooperation with countries, recognizing that countries may actually have 
transitional cost to comply with Eva. Although, as Emily has said, and I fully agree with her, I mean, if you really wanted to move towards uh, decarbonizing the steel sector, you cannot have uh, significant steel producers which are not actually measuring their emissions. That's something which basically needs, uh, needs, needs to happen. Emily? Um, it's gotten to the point, I think, with sort of trade and environment panels that I've been on recently, where at the beginning everyone says, okay, we're not going to talk about CBAM the whole time. <laughs> so it does have a tendency to kind of hijack the conversation, which is why I refer to it as the elephant in the room. But, um, but no, I think there, there was an admirable effort here to, to cover a range of issues. But I mean, just to briefly respond to that question, and I think also the question from before, um, you know, it's a really big existential question that you ask, you know, how, how do we use how do we globally decarbonize and what's the role of trade measures? Um, you know, what's the, what are the limits of using these kind of tools like CBAM? Could we just have every country, you know, condition import on em emissions? Um, and I think what, what, what the problem with that is, is that it is just insanely complex as a regulatory measure. So this is limited to primary commodities. But as soon as you start thinking about, you know, the amount of emissions embedded in a car, first of all, you need to know where all the components come from. Do they have, you know, domestic carbon pricing there? Um, how do you measure? Are you including indirect emissions, direct emissions? So it quickly starts to feel like something that's not feasible for, say, a customs officer <laughs> to be able to deal with, to really understand what's, you know, lift up the hood on on what's going on with with emissions. So I think, um, you know, ultimately, what do we need to do? You know, consume less, <laughs> but in the meantime, let's figure out some 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 place for trade tools. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Good. No, and, and that, what I think it is so important to have a multilateral agenda on this, because all of these measures are going to be taken by different countries with different characteristics, and you need to have a place where you discuss those issues as early as possible, to compare approaches and also to try to avoid as much as possible inconsistencies in the way that the measures are being developed. And as I said, at this point in time, we are a little bit in the, in the exposed area because we have been the first one to do it, and I think that you are going to have a variety of actions taken by different countries with a view to contribute towards decarbonization, which are going to have an impact on trade, and you need to have a place in the WTO where you discuss those issues. And that's why we believe that this is something that, uh, even if at the end of the day we are not going to negotiate uh, new rules, it is something which is important uh, that should happen in a multilateral institution. Thank you. Okay. Um, time. Uh, I'm sure many of you have many points and questions you'd like to put to Emily and Ignacio. Please do use the reception time to do this. Uh, don't hound them, but yes, ask them. <laughs> now, uh, before I thank Ignacio and Emily, I have a couple of very small announcements. First, your feedback. We need your feedback so that the events office uh, knows uh, how it went. And the second is, um, I mentioned earlier, November 22nd, we have the third in the series where Ignacio presents, and that'll be much more about geopolitics. So the first was about the ministerial which took place in June, this one we've just seen, and the third one will be November 22nd. I, I believe flyers have been given to everyone, so please do come for that because this is a continuing conversation. So with your permission, uh, I would like to formally thank both Ignacio and Emily for sharing uh, 
their thoughts and ideas on a really, truly complicated, sensitive and huge topic. So I hope you'll all join me in uh, thanking and congratulating Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.